Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Whenever I get stuck in my career, I always look into the past and how other people really reinvented themselves during that time as artists. This is BIPOC Credits, a podcast highlighting BIPOC crew members working in the BC film industry. Listen in to stories from behind the scenes of your favorite films and TV shows. Together, let's celebrate the progress we've seen so far in becoming a more diverse film industry. Plus, learn how you can be a part of the BC film industry. Here's your host, Andy Wong. Hello, thank you for joining us today on BIPOC Credits. Cinematographers, or director of photographers, are the leader of the technicians. However, you might be surprised by what their job actually entails. Alfonso Chin is a Chinese-Canadian cinematographer from Mexico. He's worked on shows such as the Netflix series Voir and the upcoming Robbie Amell film Float. In this episode, Alfonso talks about the responsibilities of a cinematographer, how cinematographers work with the directors and the producers. He talks about his experience working with David Fincher and the lessons he learned about the importance of attention to detail. He has a good perspective as to how to pick the right project because it's not always about the money. Finally, he discusses the often confusing topic of agents and why they can really help your career, but only at the right time. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Alfonso Chin. Thanks so much for joining us, Alfonso. This is, uh, I'm so excited to be chatting with you. Uh, I've been a huge fan of your uh, photography first, actually. I saw your photography first on Facebook and I was like, oh, that looks amazing. And I started like looking you up and then became a huge fan of your work. Oh, thank you for, for having me. This is great. What's your favorite thing about being a cinematographer? I think that one of the big things that I love about cinematography is really is in touch with my personality. I remember when I was growing up as a kid, I always liked facilitating with a group of people and, and trying to do things together and, and create something together. I was always being that kind of person that likes to create an environment for the person who wants to do something, to do something. And so I think it links to that and, uh, and it allows me to meet directors in a more intimate way as well, or, or how they see the world, which is really interesting to me. Everyone has a very interesting perspective about how they see things. And um, yeah, and then creating this, merging this idea of using techniques and sensibility of, of art and psychology and all those things to create something for the spectator and, and to try to tell a story was always fascinating to me as a cinematographer. I mean, even when I went to film, I didn't know I wanted to be a cinematographer until 
um, you know, there's this person say, hey, you seem to have really interesting sensibility to this. You should try cinematography. And then I jumped right in and I realized very quickly it's there's this really interesting feeling and satisfaction when you create something from nothing and then it creates a, a visual image and that image visual image carries some sort of emotion or expression. I, I caught that the first thing that you mentioned about what you like about cinematography was actually bringing people together and like bringing bringing in the team, not so much like the the aspects of like you know creating an image or anything like that. Um, so that, that that's kind of interesting. Can you talk a bit about you know what your role is as a cinematographer? Yeah, the thing that I've been uh, self reflecting about my role is I'm basically the right hand to the director, and what that means is. Um, I try to put together a team that reflects the the director's personality. Actually, that's that's the more I grow as cinematographer, the more I'm realizing it's really creating a space and environment that caters to the to the director. So I try to bring personalities that are very similar to the director, um, and uh, and creating that space. And yeah, and so I basically manage two different. Uh, three different teams you know the camera the electrics and the grips and uh, and then you the choices from your for your cinematography really starts on those choices is who you're bringing and who's available and, and all things like one of those puzzles where you want to find the balance to bring the right people for the right project so as a cinematographer you're not necessarily expected to know everything which is why you hire you know your gaffer your or your key grip so like part of that cinematographer's job is to hire those people that would fit for the project. Yeah, it's so important because very often I, I know the, 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 the sentiment I want to get out of a shot or, 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 the, or the visual, but you need to get a team that can go there and do the nuances of how to put it together, you know, like, for example, a big one is generators and power and all those things. So I rely heavily on my gaffer to do the distribution. I have a certain demand that I usually make, like, oh, I would love to control these windows and I want to create it like this. If the sun is in the wrong direction, so I want to re redirect it with lighting, creating a certain thing. And then really someone like my gaffer uh, and the key group will work together to try to figure it out things and I, actually actually that's how i like to work i like to impose challenges versus telling them how to do certain things um because i think i work best that way is when someone challenges me okay i would love to do this but i don't know if it's possible and then i'll go and think about it wow okay interesting okay and i'll take that as a as my motivation it's like i need to solve this problem and yeah. and when someone poses that challenge it's more exciting versus like i want to do it this way um, so very often, yeah, everyone you work with knows a lot more. And as a matter of fact, I think a lot of cinematographers, they know from experience, perhaps, uh, I can only speak for myself. So I think for myself is, um, I know a lot of general stuff, but in terms of what's best for something I want to do, I always ask them and they always give me a sense of like, you want to try to do this, you want to do this or you want to do this. And then I choose from there. So I think it's very similar to a director. The director has options and mm -hmm. I give them options. So right? like the director will like, okay, can we approach like a moonlight this, this way, you know, like a moonlight situation. And then I'll create, I'll create three options that best suit it. And I'll explain each option, what's, what's different between each option. And then the director right. chooses the options. 
so very often it's it's like that right did you always know that like as a director of photography you were going to need to communicate like communication is such a huge part of that job or did you originally think that it was actually more about you know playing with camera angles and stuff i think in the beginning it was mostly playing with camera angles at first because i think i fell in love with documentaries and there was this beautiful thing that i was doing where i would go with um a director or even myself because I, I i i was filming a lot of short documentaries and but part of that process was observing people, the person that I was like filming, and I was very obsessed with people's behavior. And I thought that was very, very interesting. So from operating the camera at the time, I was really just trying to find ways to capture that space and then and, and, and best frame the behavior of that person that was filming in a documentary style. That was at first. And then when I moved up from doing documentaries, I started to do more fiction, more scripted stuff. And I think that's when the transition started to, to, to change because I started to really think about efficiency. And one of the things that you notice very quickly on structured films, not documentaries, but like, uh, you know, scripted ones is you only have a certain amount of time to serve, to do certain amount of shots and, uh, and you have to be able to communicate. And I think that's when I started to be more precise about what I want to accomplish with those 12 hours in a day and, and how to best communicate it and where to prioritize certain things. So yeah, it, at first it wasn't. At first, I think that's the beautiful thing about that I, that I love about my early beginnings or even doing documentaries is you, you start bonding with how the camera uh, captures someone's behavior. It's a beautiful thing when you think about it. When... Yeah. We, we don't notice a lot of things that we do um, subconsciously. And then this camera device will capture all those things. And then we'll, 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 make, we'll make spectators associate a certain emotion or, or something. And, and, then, and then that is, to, I, even to this day, sometimes when I think about it, I think that is so beautiful. Yeah. And it's very different to painting, you know, or, or, or any, any um, still kind of, kind of, Kind of medium and and the, the beautiful thing about filmmaking is capturing motion as well and there's this beautiful thing that happens when you're observing motion and uh and it, it starts to create this this immersive experience and or even allowing people to project themselves because they're seeing something familiar or something that they can relate to and then and then from those behavior, it translates into emotion, and then from the emotion into something more psychological, and then it goes on and goes on. And, and that's the beauty of cinema. And I think that's how I, right. I fell in love with cinematography, because of that. As a kid, I always observe people, because maybe because of the languages and, and how, because I, I grew up in different countries, and I had to learn a new language every single time, so I couldn't really speak the language very well at the time and I would just observe people and, and what how they're behaving and so that augmented a lot more in my early childhood because I had to know what people were saying without knowing the language so observing this behavior really made me reflect about how interesting people are on behavior alone you you grew up in Mexico right yeah I was born in Mexico I lived there until I was like 11 yeah, and then um, having to like, I guess, 
come over here. You you knew how to speak English and everything like before you came here, right? Well, well, I mean, I moved to LA as well when I was eleven, so I didn't speak a word of English. No, I I still remember when I was in my in one of the classes, and I think it was like a physical ed. Uh, class. It was PE, and uh, someone stole my wallet uh, from the locker or somewhere, and I couldn't even know how to say it. Someone stole my, my my wallet. So I remember going to the administration office, and they just pointing at it, and and I was embarrassing because I was like, I didn't know how to speak it. So it was my early early days uh, of when I first moved to LA. I didn't speak English. Why did you decide that you wanted to move into narrative filmmaking as opposed to staying staying in documentary? Well, I mean, I still love doing both or or all the different genres. Actually, I get bored if I get stuck in doing one particular type of filmmaking. Um, but the 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 transition I remember making from documentary was I was doing this series, uh, uh, In Gang Life, and I remember I was basically following how uh, there's a special task force that targets and uh, aims at say, uh, keeping the community safe from gangsters and, and gang-related crimes. And I remember following, uh, you know, the in a police car and just seeing how they work every day. And I remember there was one experience where uh, the reality of, of the process got very realistic. I was... I remember we went to Abbotsford or Maple Ridge somewhere and they block off this road and there was like a Hells Angels party. And uh, and I was filming basically them pulling people out of their cars and, and searching them. And they would just pull all these different drugs and they put it in a backseat. And there I am with a camera filming them. And I remember they were very aggressive towards me. And they will they, they will sometime take out their phone and take a photo of me or something and say, you know, a lot of, a lot of big words that, you know, they find me, they'll kick my butt or something. And then I remember really feeling like, wow, at the time, the power of it is like whenever I grab my camera, I don't really think about where I'm at. I'm more thinking about what I'm filming, what I'm capturing. And to me, there's a sense of duty of capturing those stories that needs to be told. So in, in, at that time, I don't really think about it. But I remember after the projects, uh, I started to really feel like, wow, like maybe I need a little break from working in, in documentaries. That project sounds really stressful. And I'm sure like, you know, just in fear of your, your own personal safety, I'm sure that definitely took a toll on your mental health. Yeah, there was a little bit of that for sure. I remember I walking in the street and I, I from time to time when I see like a very sketchy person walking and I feel like, oh my God, maybe it's one of those people that, that, that I was filming or something. But no, it's actually it never happened. It was just on my mind. But uh, I think emotionally, I needed something more structured. And, and I think that, and I still do documentaries. I mean, I think uh, right. two years ago, I did that History of BC thing. And, and we traveled for like, you know, 70 days. And we went to all these different communities to tell different stories about the history of BC. I mean, it's, I still love it as a, as a, as a way to learn different things that I would have never mm-hmm. learned on textbook or anything get firsthand experience of listening to people's stories. And I think that's very beautiful. So I don't think I would ever take that away from me. So you've worked on like $500,000 projects, or even short films, and then also like, you know, $10 million projects. Does your role differ between those kind of projects? 
Uh, I still, I still approach it very similarly. It doesn't matter the budget. I still approach it in a way that I have to understand what the scene is about, or if not, if I don't understand the scene, uh, I have to explore it and and find it. So in that in that sense, it's very similar. When you have a big team and a structure every day, you're executing a list of to do list basically. Right, so it's hard to deviate fully from it because the cost is very high, and it, there's a lot of uh, uh, people to wrangle around. And then I think that's the difference. Really, is I prefer sometimes. I mean, it's a balance. I prefer to have a lot of creative freedom where we we go there and trying to explore what we want film versus trying to okay, this is what we're executing. Uh, so in those five hundred dollars projects, or, or sometimes not even like there's not there's no budget or something, it allows you to to move uh, easier and to react to spontaneous moments and things like that. And sometimes you capture a lot more authentic and organic, less contrived uh, things because I think with filmmaking is you always go in with a hypothesis of what you want to get on the day or or, or what you hope to get out of the scene, right? And very often is you go for your first instinct hypothesis, okay, this is what we're getting and that's where the shot list is. But very often, that's not how reality works. Sometimes an actor brings something very different on the day or something happens on the day that you think, wow, this is very poetic and in sync to, to beyond what you're trying to tell and then you can capture that and you pivot a little bit. So it's easier to do on, on the almost no budget, low budget. And... Right, but the the downfall of that is you don't have as much control, so you also lose some stuff. You 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 know you. I I personally love both worlds. The beautiful thing about having a proper budget, whatever proper means, but like a a budget to do certain things, uh, you really bring together a very highly skilled uh, skilled people on set to do something really well. And I love that. I think it's very, very exciting to see grips and key grips and gaffer and electrics and first ACs and stuff like that all working together. And and they're so good at what they do that um, it's it's fascinating how well the machine works in, in the filmmaking process with those type of budget. Especially when it's a higher budget for a show that everyone is excited to work on as well. There's an energy to the set. One of my favorite projects that you worked on is War, uh, the one mm-hmm. that David Fincher uh, produced, and and mainly because I'm a huge fan of uh, video essays. Um, so, and I'm a huge fan of Tony, who did every frame of painting. And so, when I heard you guys were all working on that together, I was like mind blown, and I was so excited. Can you talk about what it was like working with David Fincher? I remember it was one of those processes where. It was ongoing exploration of what we're doing. And there's a lot of things that we film that is not actually on this episode and, and it changed a little bit. Um, but even at the same time, trying to figure out the, the structure, how to film some of these things was very interesting. So it was a great experience. And uh, even to this day, I, um, you know, I hope there is more seasons coming, but I don't know if that's going to be yeah. the case. And um, I just really enjoyed the experience. Did Fincher give you a lot of notes in what he wanted in terms of like camera work or anything like that? Or did he just kind of let you guys do your thing and then like gave notes like afterwards? 
from my end of things, and I, and I started the question with a bit of a laughter because um, nobody knew what, what this is going to be. And uh, there was no parameters around it. Other than I remember specifically the early meetings. Uh, so Fincher did not want to make a documentary. That was like the, the first thing was said. It's like, I don't want to make a documentary. So we had to start to dissect what does that mean? You know, because the, right. the structure is very much like a documentary. Someone's talking about point of view and, 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 and telling some facts about certain things. And then the moment you put a camera in front of someone talking, it's a documentary. And, and right. how do we deviate from that? How do we break it so that it's not a documentary? So, so that was the first thing um, I started to dissect and how, how, to, how to make that. I remember that in terms of notes, there were a lot of notes, actually. Like there was technically as well. Um, we did so many camera tests too, uh, because at the time, um, it's, it's I think six episodes now, but there's three episodes that was being shot in LA by a whole different unit. So we needed to right. come to an agreement of what the look is like for the, for this, for the show. So we did some tests and we, we, we did different things to, to see how it all kind of come together. But at the end of the day is that we, we could do whatever we wanted because it didn't matter what, what we needed to do. The one thing that was, oh my God, this is a gazillion emails going back and forth. I remember it was the aspect ratio. The aspect ratio was was all over the place. Nobody could agree on what the aspect ratio was going to be. And then Fincher writes in an email saying it's going to be two two one. So it's the it's the um, it's the we oh got uh, mind hunter aspect ratio. So he just basically said right. this is the aspect ratio. So we're like, okay, I guess it's a Fincher show, so it's going to be like mind hunter. So but the aspect ratio said we had to custom make the aspect ratio, and I remember. Um, the the post house sent us this chart that we had to like to, to frame it up to make sure everything's within that aspect ratio. So that was the interesting thing. But in terms of lens choices and cameras, uh, it was all our choice. Yeah. But we had to shoot two, we had to shoot with two cameras, so we had to go with the red, and we had to adopt his methodology, which is uh, extracting a five K in the center of the frame on within an eight K. So right. that was the only parameters is that he wanted to have control at the end of the day to dictate how the frame should be as well in, in post to adjust it. So that's one thing, something we adopted and we had to figure out um, from before shooting all the way to post how the workflow is going to be like. So we had to keep it a very clean AK. So everything is usable within those AK. And, but the right. actual frame is that 5K in the middle. But within the 5K is actually a 4K that's going to be on the show. Right, right, right. It cuts down. Yeah, so we had to frame all these different aspect ratio, and all of them has to be very clean. And that was the hardest part of the process because we would frame something up with two cameras, two red cameras, and we had to keep both cameras clean, meaning no boom dipping in, there's no like C-stand on the side, or if, if something is right in between, let's say a lamp, and it's like the leg is like in between the frame, either it's in or out. And that was one of those, those, those little nuances that the notes would be like, like from Fincher. It would be like either that object is in or out. 
And, and another thing that was very specific about is magenta in the shadow. So for some reason, he dislikes the idea of having magenta in the shadow. Because uh, yeah. from, from my understanding is uh, he doesn't like the idea of how consumer TV came about, that they started to inject a lot of pink and magenta to make an image look pretty. Oh, interesting. And it's more of a consumer thing. So he wanted to not have those things in, in, in the spectrum. So we're very, very careful with magenta. And sure enough, during post, there is a frame that there's a note saying, does magenta in the shadow? And I looked at it, I don't see it. And then Tony goes into the bathroom, I think, with a tablet. And it's in a plain darkness. He's like, oh, I see it now. Like, it's right there. I think Taylor found it first. Like, oh, I see it. It's right there. So is it that specific? Wow. I mean, he is known to be a perfectionist. And, and so it makes sense. But yeah, that amount of detail is is so so crucial for him. Yeah. And then I, I told my, my gaffer, my um, my usual gaffer, Rich McDonald, uh, I remember telling him to test every light and everything to make sure there's no magenta. So we, we started to get very OCD about, about all of that process. And I think it made us a better filmmaker. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Uh, I think it made me a very different type of filmmaker too, because now I really observe um, with intention what's in the shot now, and even the little details. And the idea is, it's he not definitely uh, not obsessive for no reason. And, and and we start talking about Tony Taylor and myself and and our, our producer Notch about this process, and we were doing only like fifteen to. 18 shots a day and because we have to spend so much time dissecting and making sure everything's is good um and so that changed the schedule but we had to like justify okay what why we're doing such a detailed specific way and it makes sense it's like you don't want to distract the audience with something that is not supposed to be there and then the audience are thinking and wondering why that thing is there right because every information mm-hmm. you put in front in front of the camera it's information and you don't want the audience to start lingering and thinking about something else. So it made, it made a lot of sense why we have to be so meticulous and, and sometimes yeah. we'll see about different things. And I remember um, one of the notes I got, uh, there's a, I think it was on the chair or something. 
it is metallic and it was bouncing a little bit more light. And the note from Fincher was like, that's a third uh, overexposed. And this is a third of an exposure overexposed. And I'm not thinking, wow, okay, I'll, wow. Be more, I'll be more specific about it. So then I started to, to be more attentive to putting nets and stuff like that to make sure the exposure and everything in the frame was accurate. I can totally see how that, that experience would like make you a better filmmaker, even though like sometimes you might not have the resources to apply what you learn in certain projects. It's still good to have had that lesson in a way. Is that right? I, I, absolutely. Because I, I, from my early beginnings to now, it's the, the biggest factor that you change as you evolve as a, as a filmmaker or as a cinematographer is your approach, is your critical thinking approach. And that's the biggest thing that changes. And every project that I do, it, it adds a little bit of that critical thinking. And, and more so with war, it really taught me what to look for and how to look at things. And very often it's not about the tools, it's just training your, your cognitive of how to perceive something and, and, and why it shouldn't be there, why it should be there, why it needs to be just a certain way. It's really on a thinking process level. So that, that to me was, was the biggest lesson. And I noticed that throughout my career because I always think about what made my work better, you know, because it's very subjective, right? What, whatever you call it better. I always reflect about what I changed, what, what changed me that made my work differently. And I always find that, you know, when I was stuck, um, not knowing what I wanted to do better in my, in my cinematography in my early days, I wasn't thinking so much about the meaning of the visuals that I was doing because I was still very early on. This is we're talking about like 15 years ago or more. And I didn't understand uh, what I was looking for. So I was just doing techniques. I was applying techniques. I always felt like filmmaking or cinematography is just technique. You learn this technique, you apply this technique. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't really thinking much about the emotion of certain things. And and then I stopped filmmaking altogether for a couple of years and went back to school. And then I think that changed because I started to, to see things differently and started to think very differently. And that changed my, my relationship with my work. And I started to apply that. And then I think that's what made my work better and, and, and stood out because it started to add a layer of, of um, how, how the image and how the, the, the rhythm of those images was was connecting with audiences or the story alone. And I remember ever since that point. What, what class every, was that? What class was that again? Graphic design. I mean, I went to interactive arts at SFU mm -hmm. afterwards. So after when I was when I was stuck and, and I wasn't really getting much uh, work as a cinematographer, I decided to stop and and study more of the art, I think. And I went to interactive arts at SFU. And at first, I wasn't too sure what I was going to get out of it. Um, I just knew that I needed I needed more. And I started to really obsess about the history of art and, and sculptures and, and a lot of different things that people were doing in the Renaissance time. Because what was happening is, it's very interesting how whenever I get stuck in my career, I always look into the past and how other people really reinvented themselves during that time as artists. And I remember yeah. I stumbled in this BBC documentary about art and it talking about 
the transition from the Renaissance, the Impressionists, and then the Renaissance, and then the modern um, artist. And, they, and then that documentary really showed progression of how art was evolving and how each artist was evolving. And that really stuck with me for some reason because everyone can really paint. Everyone can know the structure of painting or the structure of making a film. But what is it makes it different from one person to another, right? Like what makes, right. where does the artistry come from, from one person to another? And that, I was so fascinated by that idea. And so I started to get more involved with art and visual art installation. So I was like, maybe I should go back to school and study that because I was getting very excited about it. And then at SFU, the interactive arts program, you learn how how there's 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 the audience that interacts, that engages with what's being presented. So that was a really interesting experience for me, and especially graphic design, because I never study visual information the same way. Because in when you learn about filmmaking, a lot of the times is the whole the whole advice of like shoot more, just film more, just take anything and go out there and shoot more, right? So you, you get stuck with the idea of, okay, the more I shoot, the better I'll get. But sometimes it's not true because the more you shoot, you're just repeating yourself. So you don't really do do projects for the money per se, right? Like I don't. I mean, unless it's commercial. Unless it's commercials. Yeah, I, I don't. I, I never focused that as my priority. Even early on, I, I never prioritized that. I still do the project. And, and I think to this day, it's one of the most successful projects. I didn't get paid much. Um, and and I, I divide it into a balance where, okay, you know, I need to do a project that I can get paid for and compensate it. And uh, some other project would just be like, oh, I really like the project. I really like this filmmaker, so I'll do it. But I have to find the time for, for that to do it and, and the ability to do it. And sometimes I ask my crew, okay, we'll do this commercial, but then we'll also have to do the short film because, or this short piece because I really want to do it. And so I need to find ways to allow myself to treat myself something I want to do. What's your relationship with your agent then? Because you have an agent now, right? Um, do they, are they like pretty supportive of you turning down certain work or, um, yeah, what's your relationship with them? Um, yeah, I'm with Sessler, and uh, they they the one who approached me first, and then I decided, to, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll sign with them. Um, I spoke with you know, it's because it's a team of agents. It's not just one agent; mm. it's actually a team of agents. Um, and then you have a team that supports you and do different things. Um, but I remember early early on, I remember uh, mentioning my interest, and I mentioned that I really like. Um, how modern uh, filmmaking I'm seeing is combining art and storytelling and cinema. And I really like that. And I told him that, you know, I'm probably not as inclined to do like Hollywood action stuff that is very formulaic. Um, I need I really need to find something that's meaningful. But I think that changes over time because I, I started to really think about what that means that if I don't want to do uh, those projects and it's and I think initially I was really thinking a lot about um, control of my artistry or whatever that means like I want to have as much of my personality across and then as I grow older and as, as I interact with my agency a lot more I'm starting to see that it's also about 
relationships about with filmmakers and, and certain directors do commercials as a as a stepping stone and uh, and at the end they want to do other things they want to do like tv series or features but they were crafting their te- techniques or something like that through commercials and i started to see it very differently so sometimes i take a project oh, okay this would be interesting to test this type of tool or or it's motion control or, or something like that. And I'll still do it. So I changed my perspective. Your agents like technically work for you and and like they're they're there to support you and not necessarily just to make money or anything. Um, it's a it's a business for them, but at the same time they really um, care about uh, the people in the rosters. Is there anything that um, people might might think that agents do for you, but you should really be like aware of yourself? I think uh, the interesting thing about agencies is that uh, sign to one when you feel you need it. And mm. what I mean is that in the past, I never felt I needed an agent or, or a team of agents um, until later on when things got to get a lot more complex, when um, you know there's certain contracts or budgets uh, that need to be discussed. And I don't have the experience to really negotiate those points. And I think agents are really good at that, uh, at negotiating for you and representing you. So you don't get stressed out or anxious about making sure you got all the negotiation points. Do you have any tips for um, young cinematographers? The tip that worked for me the best was... I don't like the idea when people say fake it till you make it. I think it's a really bad advice. It adds so much anxiety on you. And, and I think you have to respect the project. Um, nowadays, a project goes through so many uh, hurdles to get it made, you know, like financing or, or even a, a spec piece or commercial it goes through so many agencies, so many is vetted. And then you don't want to hire someone that um, is faking until you make it because it's a big risk, I think. And I never wanted to be like that as well. Like I'll take on a project, I'll mm-hmm. assess it, and then I'll have a conversation with people I trust or my gaffer or key grips. It's like, so this is saying, uh, I haven't really done something like this, but I kind of know this is the parameters. Can we do it? What are your advice? And then I'll communicate that with the director and say, we can do this. But I never really pretend I know all the answers and or faking it till I make it. You, I think that's part of opening a conversation. Uh, and and this is thing about vulnerability in filmmaking. I think being vulnerable is good, is honest. But you just you have to have the expertise, I guess, of knowing that okay, this is my sensibility, this is my taste, that is you. But you don't have to know all the answers for everything. The answer comes from all the other people you, you end up collaborating with. And if you don't have the answer, you can ask someone who is more experienced than you asking that question. And then from that answer, you can assess, okay, I want to do it this way or not, right? So I yeah. think that's, to me, was the best thing i ever done is I never wanted to fake it. I always want to find ways to communicate it and, uh, yeah. and assess a project. And then, I'll, and then once that project goes on and then I, I start adapting to the situation and I, I gather a lot of different information that I learned and applying it. And then you'd be like, wow, okay, it all worked out, you know? And, um, but it's always about risk assessment. 
It's been it's been really great talking to you, Alfonso. I'm gonna uh, end off with a few rapid fire questions. Um, first, I think you answered this one already, but what's the worst advice you were ever given? Uh, the worst advice is take everything and do everything and fake it till you make it. That's the worst advice. Yeah. What's the best advice ever? Don't feel rush that you have to be successful at being a cinematographer. Take your time to find mm. who you are. And no matter what, you might not work for two or three years, but after you get busy, you won't stop. Yeah, don't rush to the finish line. And in your opinion, what does a more diverse film industry look like? Uh, aside from uh, the color of skin and the gender, I think diversity has to come from different life experiences. Um, mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be always, you know, from a certain age group. Uh, telling a certain experience. I think a lot of teenagers, a lot of adolescents have really interesting perspectives. I feel mm -hmm. like uh, seniors have perspectives. And I think a, a very diverse group of uh, storytellers come from all ages. Because I feel like there's certain ageism in this industry too, where, oh, someone's older is more experienced, can tell better stories. It's not, it's not necessarily the case. Yeah. Especially now that we're like more open to the idea of like other people's experiences really helping our own experience. Yeah, I think that's that's a beautiful thing about expanding more diverse type of uh, stories. Um, do you have a Instagram or anything that you want people to follow you on? Yeah, I think I'm probably the only thing I've been. A lot proactive is my Instagram, which is uh, alfonsochin.x. Well, thanks so much uh, for chatting with me here. This has been this has been a real pleasure. Oh, thank you, and thank you for having me. Really, I appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Alfonso. If you want to listen to more conversations about the technical side of filmmaking, be sure to check out my episode last season with Milton Ng, who's a grip in the film industry working on shows from the feature film The Interview to the TV show Arrow and a lot more. As always, please go follow us on Instagram. Our producer Nightingale consistently promotes upcoming events and opportunities for BIPOC crew members in the BC film industry, so check that out. If you miss anything on Instagram, we have an episodic newsletter where you can find all of that information as well as additional information on our guests. If you want to support our podcast, go leave a review on iTunes or Spotify. That really helps us. But most importantly, share this with your friends who you think could really benefit from this episode. I hope you have a fantastic week and I'll see you on set. Thanks for listening to BIPOC Credits by Andy Wong. This episode was produced by Nightingale. Our editor is Rihanna Toy. Graphics by Joshua Lamb. Theme music by Peter Robinson and Patrick Fiore. Intro and outro voiceover by Mike Lee. Thank you to our community partner, culturebrew.art for supporting us. Don't forget to like us on Facebook and Instagram at BIPOC Credits. If you're enjoying what we're doing here, subscribe to our newsletter to get all the juicy information we didn't quite get to in this podcast. Thank you once again for listening to BIPOC Credits. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues 
your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 